You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. L.A. Times entertainment reporter John Horn goes on the record online. Every agency has a public relations executive who is charged not so much with dealing with their clients, but dealing with the image of the agency. So everything you see about an agency in any form is usually, not always, but often the result of the spin that's put out, you know, months and years ahead of time. And thank you for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with L.A. Times entertainment reporter John Horn who we had a chance to interview at the L.A. Times headquarters, uh, the house that Otis Chandler built uh, in downtown Los Angeles, a stone's throw from the location where we'll be hosting the online video for Organizational Communications 2008 conference, uh, which will be at RedCat on November 11th, 2008. Uh, This is a conference uh, for organizational communicators to um, figure out how to build buzz with online video. Uh, We'll have a keynote by Brent Friedman, the creator and executive producer of Gemini Division, starring Rosaria Dawson. Another keynote by Jason Calacanis, CEO of Mahalo.com. We'll have a Meet the Media session with uh, the general manager of LA Times Interactive, the host of the podcast Goodnight Burbank, and the executive producer of Bubblicious. Uh, We'll also have a Nuts and Bolts panel and that will be uh, with uh, Louis Lemure of Seismic, Rashi Malik of Kick.com, and uh, Ron Proof of OC New Media. And then we are going to wrap up the day with uh, a panel on the essence of viral video <clears throat> with the founder and CEO of Ustream TV, uh, senior director from Yahoo, and uh, an executive producer at the Annenberg Foundation, and that's going to be moderated by the director of the Charles Annenberg Weingarten Program, of online communities at USC Annenberg School of Communications. <clears throat> the conference is presented by USC Annenberg School of Communications, uh, by the Public Relations Society of America, and by iPressroom. And you can get more information at www.ipressroom.com forward slash online video, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Today in our one-on-one interview with entertainment beat reporter John Horn, uh, we had a chance to talk about new media, and whether or not it's disintermediating the Hollywood talent agency business. He told us how to get his attention if you're a PR person and you want to pitch him. And he also told us how he maintains access to influential sources as a beat reporter while maintaining integrity uh, and and transparency and authenticity and, and access at the same time. We're going to play for you the interview after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Um, so I'm here at the Los Angeles Times, the house that Otis Chandler built and Sam Zell now owns. 
um, with entertainment reporter John Horn, who I first met, uh, full disclosure, uh, when he was with Newsweek covering the Salt Lake Winter Olympics, and he worked, we worked together on a story that mentioned my client, Kenny Ortega, uh, who directed the opening ceremonies. And High School Musical 1, 2, and 3. Right, which is coming up, so let me know if you'd like to talk to him. <laughs> That's all I want to say about High School Musical 1, 2, and 3 for now. Uh, well, you said you had small <laughs> kids, so you'll, you'll be saying that over and over again, I would imagine. That's why. Yeah. Um, so the Los Angeles Times is the second largest metropolitan uh, newspaper in the U.S. and the fourth most widely distributed daily newspaper. And today, as I walked up to the building, it was surrounded with, uh, with film crews, uh, film, film trucks. And they're obviously filming something here. And I mean, there is a lot of trucks and a lot of people and obviously a lot of money being spent on whatever it is they're making here today. Um, is this business sustainable? Well, there's two parts to answer. The first part is filming in the LA Times. Uh, this building used to also be the headquarters for Times Mirror, which is no longer in existence because it was bought by Tribune, which was taken public by Sam Zell. And one of the jokes around the newsroom is that the paper makes more money in selling out offices or running out offices for film shoots than it does from advertising these days. Of course, that's not really true. But uh, the film business itself is relatively healthy. I mean, there's a lot of money coming in in terms of production. One of the reasons that there's a lot of film trucks around the LA Times is there's a lot of film production uh, in Los Angeles, or has been. We've seen a little bit of a slowdown because of the uncertainty over the Screen Actors Guild negotiations. So there was a 100-day writer's strike, which did put a little crimp in production, especially television production. And now the studios have spent most of their production money on the first half of 2008 in terms of their new films. So we're seeing a slowdown in the second half of the year, but as the shoot outside of our office is a test, there is a fair amount of production still going on. It's just not as much as it had been in the first half of the year. Now, you recently wrote a piece about the agency wars, the talent agency business. And first, th first thing I'd like to know is looking back now on having written this story in retrospect, what, if anything, surprises you most about the state of the talent agency business? Well, the story was actually suggested to me by an agent at the Endeavor Talent Agency, and he believed that the story would show that it was really a two-agency town, that it was CAA, Endeavor, and then everybody else, CAA being the Creative Artists Agency. The reporting, and we used a methodology that a lot of people attacked, but I thought it was the best methodology to use, which was to look at the biggest summer movies and look at the key creative elements in those summer movies and find out which agency represented those creative people. It's a kind of a way of coming up with a scorecard of who had the most clients in the biggest films. And rather than it showing that CAA and Endeavor were on top of the mountain, it showed that CAA was on top of the mountain, and then it was a, a pretty good fall down to Endeavor and then the rest of the agencies. Um, I think what it showed is that there's really one agency in town that has the lion's share of business, and that's CAA, and that everybody else is scrambling to, uh, to chase them. I think Endeavor is probably the second strongest agency, but what it also showed is that there's no real, outside of CAA, there's no real dominant player in any area. And for some, I think that's good for the business because it sh means that everybody's hungry, everybody's trying hard, and nobody's complacent. Um, you're, you're on record um, already uh, saying that, uh, you know, the agency spent a lot of time and energy trying to influence the outcome of your story. And uh, I'm wondering to know how much of the, uh, that energy uh, happened via meetings and phone calls and email, 
and how much, if any, uh, was a result of discoverable information on the internet? I mean, did you find, did, did you get the feeling as though these agencies had Googled themselves and sort of put information online for you to find? Was there any attention played, paid to online presence? Uh, I think in some ways, and but it's a the online presence is the result of a, of a media strategy that kind of predates the publication of anything that's in print, on radio, or online. I mean, the, the agencies don't like to see themselves, don't like to be seen as promoting themselves. They think it's unseemly. They think their client, it makes their clients nervous that they're not promoting them. But of course, the agencies do that. Every agency has a public relations executive who is charged not so much with dealing with their clients, but dealing with the image of the agency. So everything you see about an agency in any form is usually, not always, but often the result of the spin that's put out you know, months and years ahead of time. And there's some bloggers who track the agency wars very carefully. Nikki Fink, on her Deadline Hollywood Daily site, chronicles pretty much every agency defection. If, an, if a client leaves an agent, agency and goes to another, uh, generally she's going to report it. Now, she's not getting that information from the client. She's getting it from the agency generally that has landed the new client. So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes positioning. Uh, the thing that is not hard to, to, that is difficult to see is what is the result of a planted story and what is the result of somebody doing some hard-nosed investigative reporting. Uh, I think you'll generally see that the agencies are very mindful of how they're perceived because it's the old you know, Hollywood maxim that the perception is more important that, than the reality. So if you're perceived as strong, and in Hollywood this is absolutely true, you become strong. So what the agencies are constantly doing is trying to manage expectations down and kind of over-delivering uh, after that. So we're not really that strong, but look at all the clients that we had in these movies. So they want to make it seem as if um, that they are omnipotent. And, of course, not all of them are, but there's a lot of behind-the-scenes maneuvering that that, go, that takes place. There's a lot of discussion in um, the public relations and corporate communications arena now that says um, we need to be more transparent as communicators on behalf of the organizations that we serve. Um, and, uh, you know, many would say that, uh, you know, your website, the organization's website, is really the centerpiece of your external communications platform. Um, so... When I went to the uh, CAA website, I found that there was just really the, only the address. Could you even find a list of clients? And No, nothing at all. <laughs> and so uh, how is it that they're able to buck this trend and still you know, maintain this dominant position? I think it's something that is unique to the agency business. You go to a movie studio website, it's absolutely going to list all the movies that they've made or what's coming up. Um, you could go to you know, the Chrysler website, and it's going to tell you what cars they have and what new car models are coming up. Uh, it, there's something unique about talent agencies, and that is that they like to, if there's a kind of a Wizard of Oz element to it, that there's somebody behind a curtain operating things on their client's behalf, but you don't want to know who that person is. So if you're a client of the agency, you're going to be told what movies they're working on, what other filmmakers they have, who you're going to be in the room with. If you're an actor and you go in to meet with, a, with an agency, they're going to tell you who they represent because they want to sell their agency to you. And they may tell me as a reporter, but they're not going to tell the public because they want to kind of maintain an air of mystery about who they are. And it's one of those things that the less information they share, in some ways they believe, and they might be right, the more important and powerful it makes them seem. That it's like, if you, have, if, if you need to ask us, 
If you need to ask how much that house cost, you can't afford it. If you need to ask CAA who we represent, you don't know anything. Um, I was watching uh, an interview um, uh, between Charlie Rose and a, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, Esther Dyson. This was January 06. And uh, I was so struck by what she said, I wrote it down. Um, and this is outside of the context of entertainment, clearly. Uh, but she said, um, the losers will be people who create inefficiencies and benefit from them. Uh, the middlemen in business. This is her line. And then Charlie Rose, following it up, says, they've already lost. So here they are talking about how middlemen are, are, are going to go the way of the dinosaur. Uh, yet you, we have these talent agencies who are middlemen, who are brokers, and they seem to be doing just fine. What is it they know that Esther Dyson and, and Charlie Rose don't? There's two ways of looking at it. There's some actors who no longer have agents or who haven't had agents in a long time, but you have to be at a certain level uh, to be that, be that successful. You know, you have to be Leonardo DiCaprio to be that powerful and to have stuff that you're in kind of in the phone answering business rather than the phone calling business. Here's the, here's the, and you can argue whether or not it's essential, but here's the role that agents serve and here's how they've made themselves valuable. For any given job in Hollywood, acting job, directing job, cinematography job, there are 100, if not 200 potential, potentially right people for that job. So it's a little bit like getting into an elite Ivy League college. And if we're gonna take that college analogy a little bit further, here's somebody who says, you know, I know all the people at Yale. My brother went to Yale. I used to work at Yale. And I think I can get you in. So if you are an actor and you're in this incredibly competitive business and you're trying to get this one job that 199 other people are after, you have in an agent somebody who says that they can get you in the door and they can get you the job. You're not gonna even be able to audition without an agent. I mean, that's one of the rules of Hollywood. And maybe it's an arcane rule and maybe it's a rule that doesn't make any sense. But you're not gonna be able to meet with a casting director, a filmmaker, anything outside of a student film unless you have a talent agent. It's almost a, it's almost a good housekeeping seal of approval that you're legitimate, that you have some qualities. Now what the bigger agencies have done that is incredibly important is they've brought money into the picture. The studios over the last couple of years have increasingly become distributors of finished film. They may give, uh, they may put some of their own capital into the films, but they increasingly look to outside investors, maybe hedge fund money, maybe private equity, maybe high net worth individuals who want to finance films for any number of reasons. So the talent agencies have put it as, have essentially cornered a lot of that money. So in some ways they're able to offer almost direct employment to their clients. So you can argue that they are middlemen. You can argue that in, in an efficient market, they're unnecessary, but they do serve a purpose that works for both sides of the table. You look at a company like Pixar that operates outside of the Hollywood system and just has this remarkable track record. And um, I, I want to refer to an interview I recently heard with the president of Pixar, Ed Catmull, if I pronounce it correctly. Correct. And I want to apologize to the podcast that I heard it on because I tried to find it and I, I, I couldn't. I, I kind of thought it was the Harvard Business Idea Cast, but then I didn't see it there. So apologies and uh, shoot me an email if, if it was your podcast and I'll, I'll recognize you on the next show. Um, but he spoke about the benefits of making, the, making movies outside of Hollywood. And he said, uh, collaboration is the genesis of creativity. 
and that agencies tend to restrict access to their clients, suggesting that it's disadvantageous to making good movies. Um, are agencies good or bad for the creative process? The thing you, let me just address the Pixar issue first. Pixar not only operates out of Hollywood kind of psychically, they operate out of Hollywood physically. They're in Emeryville and they're in the Bay Area. They're 300 miles away. So they have a campus that is about as far removed from Hollywood as a Hollywood studio can be because they're owned by the Walt Disney Company. So they have a geographic separation that allows them to do things internally and allows them to work on their own model. And it's, in, it's the best model in Hollywood right now. Um, you can argue that studio executives have as much blame as talent, talent agents for gumming up the process. I mean, there is a whole level of employees within Hollywood, they're called development executives, creative executives, who do nothing but spend day after day, week after week, month after month, giving notes on a screenplay, you know, and they may take what is a crummy idea and turn it into a great idea, or more often than not, they may take a great idea and make it mediocre. So there's a whole infrastructure within Hollywood that is tries to, uh, it's not that they try to dumb things down, but that is the consequence. But they just go through revisions after revisions after revisions. Sometimes those kinds of revisions help material. Generally, they kind of knock off the sharp edges, and the sharp edges are what makes movies interesting. The thing that talent agents do is they're gonna steer by, by nature, I mean, they're operating on a commission basis. So if you have a $20 million actor and a $1 million actor, the incentive has to be to get that $20 million actor work. Obviously, it's to get that million dollar actor up into the higher pay scale. But if you have a system that is naturally inclined to focus the best material toward those top stars, you're gonna see the same people in the same movies, the same screenwriters doing the same writing, the same directors making the same films, that in some way the economic model does not create an incentive for the up and comers to get a shot. So one of the things that the smaller agencies advertise and one of the things that I think is a legitimate argument against CIA, even though CIA would say it's not, is that there are smaller, different, uh, unheard voices and that those people are gonna bring about change creatively. If, you, if every time you are casting a movie, your shortlist is Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt, you're not gonna get the next Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks or Brad Pitt. And the other agencies, because they don't represent them, are able to bring those people into the table. We are talking to John Horn. He's an entertainment reporter at the Los Angeles Times. He writes for the calendar section. Um, let's just uh, have you sound off on what your interests are, um, the best way to contact you, uh, what don't you want to hear and what do you want to hear from people in the public relations trade? Well, if you read what I do, I don't do a lot of celebrity profiles and I also don't do reviews. So there are a lot of people who will come up to me and say, you know, are, are you interested in reviewing this film? I haven't reviewed a movie in 20 years. Um, and generally I'm not interested in doing a profile of an actress or an actor unless that person is iconic and is a filmmaker as well. Um, I write primarily about the creative aspects of Hollywood, and I particularly write about the intersection of commerce and art. So I write a weekly column uh, in the calendar section called Word of Mouth that's about movie marketing, and it's generally looking at films coming up, but it can oftentimes look at films going back. It's focused a lot on box office and the release of new films into the marketplace. Um, I tend to visit a lot of filmmakers while they're making movies, so I'm interested in watching the creative process when it happens. Um, and I also write 
very frequently on independent film. Now those can be movies that are playing at film festivals, they can be movies that are released by the specialized film divisions of the major studios, but I am much more inclined to be writing about The Visitor than I am about Speed Racer. It's just the nature of my interest. How many pitches would you say you get a day? I don't get that many. I, got a t- I would say, you know, 10, but the people I work with on a regular basis know that the best pitch they can make to me is we have an interesting movie, come see it. And that if I see something that I'm intrigued by, that the story will kind of present itself. But I don't generally get a call saying, uh, you know, we really think you'd meet, like to meet Katherine Heigl. She has a new romantic comedy coming out because they know that I'm not interested in those kinds of stories. Or, you know, trend stories, they're not going to pitch because they're going to wait for me to spot them. I mean, generally, uh, not all, but probably the majority of stories I do are not, studi- are not the stories that maybe the studios would want me to do or pitch me on doing. Um, which isn't to say they aren't still going to be done. So more often than not, I call up the people that I'm writing about saying, this is what I'm interested in. But the best thing is to let me know what you're working on and what films you have. I mean, I only write about film. I don't write about television or radio or music. So what I have to do you know, several days a week is go see new movies. And then I want to see them first. I want to see them before anybody else does. And if I like them, I want to be able to write about them first before anybody else does. So the challenge of being a beat reporter is you need access to people in the industry to continue your coverage. But if you're too critical, maybe they'll try to isolate you or, or you know, ice you out in some way. How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, I'm not going to specify the film, but I had a conversation with my editor today where a filmmaker was unhappy about something that was completely benign that I wrote about his film. And there's two options. One is we'll just not write about the film. That if he doesn't like the way that I'm writing about it, then we just won't write about it, which I suspect will penalize the film more than it will penalize the paper. Um, The other option is we'll find some other story to write. But you're always going to have people who are unhappy with your coverage. If you're not getting complaints, you're not doing your job well. The good companies realize that that's part of the job, that if if you write a story about that is critical about one aspect of their business, that when they have a good film or a good story that comes along, that because you have done that critical story, you have the credibility to say this is a good film. If everything you write about is positive and every movie you see you love, you're like the boy who cries wolf. No one will believe you. Smart companies think that. Paranoid companies says, think that you're against them, which is, of course, untrue. We don't think that way individually. We don't think that way collectively. So smart companies will say, you've got to take the good with the bad. And if a bad story comes along, maybe the next story will be nice. Um, but I think that the paper, because it's so large and because there's so many other movies that we have to write about, can just as easily say, if you don't like that I'm writing about your film or you don't like what we've written about your film, goodbye and good luck. Is there any general characterization you'd be willing to make about just how paranoid the entertainment industry as a whole is? Uh, Do you see it as a particularly sensitive uh, industry, or is it an industry that really does uh, have people in it that are willing to take the good with the bad? Those are the exceptions to the rule. It's a business that is, there's two things that happen. It's a business, like I said earlier, it's all about perception. Um, So if you're perceived to have problems, if you're perceived that your movie isn't any good, then that becomes, in their mind, maybe not in the public's mind, a reality. It's also a business where anything that's critical about the creative product is taken personally. So that if a studio, 
for whatever reason, studios always do this, makes a bad movie or makes a movie that's a financial failure. A reporter who's writing about it is somehow attacking personally the people who made the film. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable how personally film, uh, film executives generally, filmmakers to a certain extent as well, and actors as well, but since I'm dealing generally with filmmakers and studio, ex- studio executives, anything that's said negative about something that they've worked on, they take as some sort of personal insult that you have denigrated them and their family and their, and their parents. It's just, it's unbelievable uh, to that extent. And I don't know if that's unique to the film business. It's certainly very strong in the film business. John Horn, entertainment reporter at the Los Angeles Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.